Freddy's home. You want to know who Fred Krueger was? He was a filthy child murderer who killed at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. He wears a dirty brown hat. He's horribly burned. He has razors on his right hand. The bastard son of a hundred meters. They burned him to death in his boiler room. And they hid the remains. But he can't get you now. He's dead, honey, because mommy killed him. When I was alive, I might have been a little naughty. But after they killed me, I became something much, much worse. This is now playing's A Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective series. Welcome to Freddy 101. Hosted by Arnie, Stuart, and Brock. Twisted, lonely souls. The worst of the criminally insane. We got special work to do here, you and me. We will be reviewing all Freddy's films from Wes Craven's original through 2010's hotly anticipated remake. Who is that? But beware. These discussions will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. You can find new episodes of this series released every week at nowplayingpodcast.com. Today we're talking about Wes Craven's New Nightmare, starring Heather Langenkamp, Robert Englund, Wes Craven, Michael Hughes, David Newsom, John Saxon, and directed by Wes Craven. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. This is Arnie, and I do have an apology to make. In one of our earlier podcasts, I might have been a little bit too harsh when in A Nightmare on Elm Street 1, I said Heather Langenkamp never gets any better. I take it back. She gets a little better, possibly even passable. I mean, she doesn't need to be clearing any mantle space for statues anytime soon unless she's going into music. Maybe she can sing and get a Grammy, but no acting awards. But she does get better than she was in 1984. I agree with you there. She could eat a little something, but uh, <laughs> she has uh, definitely improved her chops a tad. I think so, too. I was going to actually say this. Her playing herself was surprisingly natural. What a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say natural. There are still some really painful scenes. Oh, but... surprisingly natural. I didn't say it was perfect. Yeah. So, Raymond, in this one, <laughs> I mean, y'all remember at this time Prince? You remember how Prince, like, stopped calling himself Prince and, and carved his name in his face and was called himself the artist formerly known as Prince? This is Taff Cap. This is Tef Kef. This is the evil formerly known as Freddy. Because it's not Freddy. It's like some wannabe Freddy, newfangled, remade, princey Freddy. Holy shit. Can I just say, holy shit. Well, I suppose we need a plot summary, don't we? Yeah. Wes Craven's New Nightmare is a touching and sad documentary about a washed-up 80s horror actress who has no friends and, tortured by stalkers and earthquakes, begins a slow descent into madness. Is that the Lifetime Network summary of it? Like, because that's the kind of shit she was doing. I think her only 
other credit at that time was she was Nancy Kerrigan in the TV movie about how Tanya Carding busted her kneecaps. <laughs> oh my God, the resemblance is astounding. Yeah, it's scary. Like right? it is, and like Nancy again, she played another Nancy, and she looks like her, and all she had to do was say, "Why me?" That was what she was doing when Wes dug her out of the bin and said, "Okay, guess what? <laughs> You're a star again." Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> All right. Uh, the actual plot of the movie isn't far off from what I just said. Strike the word documentary. It's about Heather Langenkamp. It's the 10th anniversary of a nightmare on Elm Street. She's getting phone calls from a stalker, probably. Why would she have a stalker? It, actually, in real life, she did have a stalker, and Wes asked if he could write it into the plot. Wow. Well, I guess Tiffany had a stalker. Anybody can have one. (laughs) (laughs) She's married. Her husband is Chase, a special effects guy, and her son is named Dylan, and he's sub five years old somewhere in there. The Nightmare on Elm Street movies are done, but there is a demon, a real demon. Tefcaf. (laughs) Tefcaf. Who has existed through the ages and likes scary stories. And every so often that demon likes a story so much that the story captures the demon like a rat to cheese in a mousetrap or something. And then once the story becomes too familiar or watered down, the demon make too many sequels. (laughs) The demon can get loose into the real world. And this demon liked Freddy so much, he's taking the form of Freddy in the real world. But the only person who can stop him is Heather Langenkamp, because she played Nancy, who is supposedly the nemesis, never mind Kristen and Alice and John Doe and Lisa Zane and Doc. It's Nancy who the demon must kill in order to have free reign on Earth, and he's somehow using her child as a gateway, maybe, or a pawn. I'm not quite sure. We'll talk about it. And it ends with Demon Freddy having a forked tongue and being pushed into a fire a la Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> yep. That's about the size of it, yeah. Before so, we get into the movie, can I just say that Wes Craven made such a big stink about how they shouldn't have made this a franchise, how they should have stopped at his brilliant number one, and how he didn't want to do any of this. Can we just quickly review what he deemed a higher caliber of film than making Nightmare on Elm Street films. In the time of making Nightmare on Elm Street to now, while other people were making the films we've been reviewing, he made, okay, The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. Do you see this one, Arnie? I have not. I've seen the original, but not the sequel. Half the movie is kids on dune bikes. Like, it's one of those mutant hillbilly things that come down and kill teens. But half of it is doing, like, wheelies in the sand dunes. There's more sand dune shots in this than that Vanilla Ice movie. It's just a movie about <laughs> trick bikes. <laughs> Deadly Friend, which is arguably his very lowest moment of all time. It's his version of Frankenstein where he takes his homemade robot, Beep Beep, and when his girlfriend next door dies, he puts Beep Beep's parts in her, and she starts walking around and killing people and saying, guess what? Beep, beep. It's like the very special Halloween episode of Small Wonder. Real good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And then he made Serpent and the Rainbow. 
which was a nonfiction story about a scientist that went down to Haiti and explored voodoo practices, and that he turned into some booga booga thing that's most famous for watching nails go through Bill Pullman's scrotum. That's the only thing I remember about it. Did you see that one? I have a long, long time ago. All right, so meanwhile, like, you know, while they were making Nightmare on Elm Street 3, he was putting nails through Bill Pullman's scrotum. Hey, whatever your idea of a fun Saturday night is. <laughs> All right. Shocker. Shocker. Now, you've mentioned that you have a soft spot for Shocker. It is my guilty pleasure. It's terribly done in every respect. Poorly acted, poorly made, poorly scripted. Just terrible, but yet I get some twisted pleasure from watching it. It may have something to do with the Paul Stanley soundtrack. But, you know, essentially, this was his first stab at looking at media and violence and the charge that was being thrown at him, which was that he was a perpetrator of violent entertainment that was bad and unhealthy and his way of expressing that in art was to make a killer who was put in the electric chair and then popped out of light sockets and i love lucy episodes and you know i really thought with shocker he was trying to make a new freddy because he was getting screwed on the back end for freddy and he wanted some royalties but he should have made a better movie than shocker yeah, they didn't make a shocker too, as far as I know. No, they did not. Not even a straight-to-tape one. And then finally he gets to People Under the Stairs, which is, I haven't seen it since it came out. It's either a batshit brilliant or utterly <laughs> stupid parody of Ronald Reagan. Like, it's apparently Ronald and Nancy and how they hijack black people and take them out of the crack house and abuse them. Like, it's crazy, and it may, it may actually work. I've heard some people say that it has a cult following and that there's something to it. But it was, again, him trying to be satirical. And finally, we reach the nadir of his pretensions. This is like Wes Craven is still screaming, I am an artist. I have something to say about violence and media. Listen to me, damn it. And that is how we have finally reached where we are about to hit, which is with what they have done to the series, which he was so much better than. I mean, my point is that he was so much better than this series. And why would they just make sequels to this when he, they could be making his art? And so when he finally comes back, he proceeds to make the very worst one ever. Well, clearly this is not the typical Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Right. So you're saying this is the this is kind of hard to even include in the series. This is kind of like, well, obviously, I'll call it out now. This this to me reeked of scream. And so this kind of seems to me like he thought this was a good idea. He made a whole other trilogy out of the same kind of idea. Right. Let's face something else, though. He didn't write scream. That was all Kelvin Williamson. So he just put his name on it. He directed. He directed it, and I'm sure he was brought the material because he was looking for self-referential horror. That's what he was doing. But no, in between that and this movie, he made Vampire in Brooklyn. Okay, but this is kind of not really a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. This is kind of the same people are in it and things like that, but it doesn't feel anything like it. So to compare it against the other ones, obviously it belongs in our retrospective series. I'm not crazy. This thing's in the box set, yes? Yes, it is. It's not like it's not a Nightmare on Elm Street. It is. It just doesn't fit because it is so off the rails that I think it's like – in the ocean at this point. I mean, it's, it's a vehicle moving in a terrain it wasn't even built to maneuver through. To support Stewart's argument, Wes Craven wanted this to be titled. Believe it or not, he actually wanted this, and the studio said no. A Nightmare on Elm Street 7, The Ascension. Wow. The Ascension, as if going up? That's not where I see this movie going. Well, I guess ascending into the real world. 
But they said, since it's a new break and things, why don't we just call it? Is it Wes Craven's New Nightmare? Is that the title or is it the title New Nightmare and it's got Wes Craven above it? I'm, I'm, I've always been confused. It's called Wes Craven's New Nightmare. That is the title of the movie. Oh, there's no ego in putting your name in the title, just above the title. It's slightly less annoying than based on the novel Push by Sapphire, but whatever. <laughs> I'm getting that you didn't like the movie. It's not that I didn't like the movie. Okay, We're so going to talk about how I feel about the movie. I oh. am spe- right now just specifically talking about how he didn't feel like this was a worthwhile series and that how he basically shunned everything that had happened before it and then all of a sudden, 10 years later, is willing to come back to it and make the very least satisfying, least comprehensible, worst iteration of Freddy ever. First of all, I will agree with you both. I think Stuart was just dead right right now saying it's a Freddy movie. There's no way it's not a Freddy movie. Okay. Is it a Nightmare on Elm Street? No, but it is a Freddy right. movie. It's a Freddy movie. Okay, I'll give you that. And you're saying this is the worst incarnation of Freddy ever. Did you like Prince after he sang any of those songs called <laughs> The Artist Formerly Known as Prince? <laughs> We're back to that again. Most Beautiful Girl in the World was Taft Cap. Yes, it was. <laughs> and you like that? I own it. I don't know if I like it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fair assessment. But I don't know. I felt that he finally put a little bit of terror back into Freddy. I felt that Freddy in this movie, when he finally came at the end, was more terrifying, was more scary, was more out to kill. He looked more menacing, acted a little more menacing. There was not a pun to be found. There weren't puns, but there were winky lines. We'll talk about the scene in detail when we get there. I appreciate where you're headed with Brock. This whole idea of Freddy coming into the real world wasn't made for this movie. When they went back to Wes for an original idea for part three, he said, let's bring Freddy into the real world and have him terrorize the actors. And New Line looked at him and said, all right, put the crack pipe down. And, And so we got Dream Warriors. Well, he had this idea just banging around his head. Meanwhile, over the course of the years, not only didn't he like the sequels, but apparently he was screwed out of a lot of money, in his opinion. Aha! There we go. Okay. So so there was a lot of animosity between Craven and New Line during this period, but around the time of the 10th anniversary, Bob Shea, New Line head cameoed in most of these movies went to Wes and was talking they were actually talking about doing Freddy versus Jason at this point and Sean Cunningham was involved and then Wes said you want to make things right give me back creative control let me make my movie and pay restitution and so they did and this is why we didn't get Freddy versus Jason for another decade Sean Cunningham got kind of pissed and made Jason goes to hell just so people didn't forget about Jason in the interim and and Wes went and made his opus that he'd been wanting to to make since 1987, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and finally got the Freddy dollars he felt he so richly deserved, pun intended. You know what? That feeling permeates this entire movie, of uh, this resentment of the success of Nightmare on Elm Street. He is furious at it. He hates the fact that Freddy is this pop culture icon. It irks him. I mean, there is more scenes put in the movie about the dramatic impact of what Freddy does to the culture than there is of Freddy actually doing anything in the movie. (laughs) I mean, this movie isn't a movie. It's a college thesis. Arnie, I think you wrote this movie. (laughs) I know you got to do something big and different for your anniversary. You know, maybe get Jamie Lee Curtis back, maybe go into outer space. Wes Craven thinks it's a good idea to drag this out, kill it, and then let everyone look at the autopsy. And I've got to ask, would any Freddy fan want to see that 
happened to him? Well, go back to what Brock just said in that it is returning Freddy to his scary roots. I was listening to the commentary of Freddy versus Jason, and even Robert England said, you know, in part six, we kind of went into Warner Brothers territory, and that might not have been the best choice. It had gone too far in the other direction. But Stuart, of all the people in the world to be saying this is a bad idea, aren't you the one who, for six podcasts now has been going why do we like freddy and not sympathize with the victim i don't like it when we sympathize with the killer isn't this what wes is saying during this movie aren't you and he on the same page and yet you're pissed about it we're not on the same page and if he wanted me to sympathize with the victim he would have made the person being terrorized robert england and have him be the star of the movie and screw nancy because i never liked her I don't think she's sympathetic. I don't even think she's that important in the history of teenage people. I mean, I think Kristen and the Dream Warriors were the peak of the people that fought back. Well, Stuart, why isn't this movie Freddy torturing Robert England? Wouldn't Bingo. that have been an interesting film? Why did Robert England leave town in the middle of this movie? All right. I think it's time we go through the movie. I Got think to. so, too. Yeah. Yes. All right. So it opens with a callback to part one, the building of the glove. Only now it's the building of the hand. Yeah. It's okay. it's a, it's kind of like the Freddy glove, but it's clearly mechanical and it's clearly a whole hand. And the man is whoever it is, is about to chop off and, and put it on his stump. And that is the new Freddy glove. And. But he's not a cyborg, so it's not going to work. But it does work in the movie. The, the opening is a nightmare by Nancy because every fucking movie opens in a nightmare. And it's a nightmare of a nightmare movie being made. Heather's husband is an FX guy, which actually in real life her husband is an FX guy who does work for Wes Craven. So her husband, the FX guy, is working on the set of this new movie that Wes Craven is directing, and it has, I guess, a new Freddy where Freddy chops off his own hand and puts on this biomechanical thing, and for this new Freddy, that works. He is a cyborg. Okay. And they also say, though, in this dream, I think, that there's animal tendons in the hand. Yeah, they talk about, like, some, like, dog or tiger or some nerve endings in there like it's biomechanical it's not just mechanical not that that helps <laughs> no and not that it even needs to be logical because as we will eventually find out this is all a dream or is it because you know there's a circuitous logic to this movie and how it folds back into itself and we kind of end back up on the set and the prop goes haywire and suddenly becomes a face hugger from aliens <laughs> and starts attacking the effects crew it doesn't become a face hugger from aliens it becomes thing from the adams family exactly here's what i love is the glove starts attacking people people are bleeding from the jugular Wes craven rather than help anyone yells turn off the effects because the fire is going he's far more <laughs> worried about the propane than the bleeding people <laughs> but you know they were makeup guys maybe this is their idea of humor they do this all the time oh steve's bleeding from the neck again yep <laughs> so heather wakes up and it's an earthquake because hey it's the 90s and it's la and what was the 90s in la if not one constant tremor Although, weirdly enough, this happened before the Northridge earthquake. I, after, when I did a little research on this movie, I presumed that he had just incorporated that big one that had happened into the script, but it actually happened in the middle of production. And then they took the footage from Northridge and used second unit stuff and put it in the movie. We got exposition from the TV set. There's been five in three weeks. And then she gets her first phone call right after the earthquake. Yes, which 
you know, made me think Freddie has reduced himself to making prank calls, but then I remember I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy, so he's back to his old MO. Well, yeah. my question is to you guys, who's making the phone calls? Freddie. I think it's supposed to be meant to be a mystery for a while because there's a limo driver waiting outside and yeah. uh, you know, he's creepy and a big fan of Nancy in a way that makes you want her to get away from him. So yes. maybe he and he does call her on that line so we know he has the number. He could be. It's not a very plausible reason. I think we're also supposed to suspect the babysitter. She comes in right after the actual prank phone call, and she's mm-hmm. standing there as the limo driver keeps calling. And it's the ominous, you know, like, fatal attraction. The phone rings, and everybody just stares at it. And the ring is <laughs> 10 decibels higher than everything else to make us all jump. And it's the limo driver, of course. They they play that gag way too often here. But what's funny, my wife and I are watching this. Marjorie, who's hosted some of these episodes, and she's like, what's wrong with that babysitter is she evil and i did, I'm, I'm like no there's it's just a demon don't worry about it it's not the babysitter the whole movie she's like so with that babysitter i listened to the director's <laughs> commentary turns out when they were filming that the babysitter was evil and they changed it like in a mid filming rewrite and so the babysitter is giving nefarious looks this whole time and my wife picked up on that and i'm just oblivious <laughs> this movie has a lot of misdirection and it plays it for I guess laughs or just for the fun of it or trying to keep us guessing. This opening scene, one after another, it's almost too much. But I enjoy that they trying to do something playful, but I think they went a tiny bit too far with it. But I still don't know, even after finishing the movie, who's making those phone calls. You can say it's Freddie all you want, but and he, Freddie sent those letters in the newspapers. But seriously, if he was trapped in the other world, how did he do that? I don't understand that. I, I was asking you seriously, how is it How is it possible? He's a demon who is breaking into this world, and I guess he can do so via electronics because he controlled the television and the telephone and the U.S. Postal Service. So there you go. All right. So he is has a, capable of doing everything but coming out of the bed. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You are missing, of course, the number one possible suspect, really, Robert England. She's getting ready to go for an interview, which I'm like, why? But I guess because their people are being nostalgic. It's been 10 years since Nightmare on Elm Street. So they bring her on a talk show, and Robert England spooks her by coming up out in Freddy drag and doing his whole bit, and the whole audience is dressed as Freddy. And, and I, I, lo- I do love that there were people in the audience wearing the same mask I wore to Part 6, might I just say. <laughs> I was going to ask you if you actually did a cameo in the movie. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I also would just absolutely shit if Robert England came out and stage in full makeup. Like the, you know, that takes four hours to put on that makeup. He's not going to do it for a 10 minute talk show cameo and goes, you are all my children now. Wow. A part two reference even. Mm-hmm. Well, you said before that the sensationalizing of Freddy and, and the watering down of Freddy, the shot of Freddy with the lights on him and his back to us and he's basking in the glory of the audience. That was what I thought of when you said that as the big FU that Wes Craven was doing to the people who made Freddy what he was. And it's a very interesting commentary because we've mentioned this over and over again in these podcasts about how Freddy is the star of the series. And that certainly was the case right there. But we didn't get any more of that. We had that one scene and that's it. If it was a big point he was trying to make, it might have come up later in the movie, but it just didn't. It comes up personally. You're right. That is the only time we see the mass of fans talking Mm -hmm. about it. But 
it is a becomes a personal storyline because Nancy is a parent. She has this potentially autistic child. There's something really wrong with this kid. They this they call kid. it schizophrenia, and then later she, smarter than all doctors, you know, realizes <laughs> from reading the Journal of the American Medical Association because you know everybody has that on hand that it's just sleep deprivation. Right, and no doctor reads it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but Brock, the point is reiterated time and time and time again. This is one of the most obvious times it's done but you know Wes wants it to be that Nancy sees it right Nancy sees Freddy creepy whereas everybody else sees Freddy as their friend and in the commentary he's like he wants it to be jarring that the very next scene you see him signing autographs for little kids I didn't see that as jarring I saw that as probably Robert Englund's daily life it's both, but it exists as social commentary. They are trying to make a point that this is totally whacked, that the culture has embraced Freddy to the point it is. And that Nancy's going to take a lot of heat and judgment for doing this movie and for having a child who may be exposed to the movie. That's where the storyline goes, is it becomes, well, maybe the reason why Nancy's child is screwed Heather. up is because, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make a distinguishing because she plays herself the same way that she played Nancy back in the day. She's better at conveying emotion, but I wouldn't say she makes much differentiation. So then we get to the plot of the movie, which is about time because we're 20 minutes into the movie. New Line is making a new Nightmare on Elm Street movie, and they want to have Heather star in it. And proving this is fiction, she says, I have other stuff happening. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's face it. If I could meet her minimum pay, she'd be co-hosting now playing with us. Yeah. <laughs> she is in no means to say no to a paycheck. The way she said it, though, I thought she was just being polite and saying, I don't want to do the movie. I didn't take it as her actually meaning it as a meaningful thing. Oh, I, I believe it. And then he flatters her and it's like, you're rating right up there. I'm like, with who? Am I a Bialik? Like, what? Who? Who is she beloved as? I mean, this is this ridiculous well you know what this movie is so unflattering to heather langenkamp as a person that i feel like this is one of the things they have to do to be like okay we'll be nice she's too busy she's a concerned mother and she puts that above her own career and they're trying to make her in this moment be sympathetic because later they really portray her as a, a hot mess <laughs> Did you guys enjoy the Peter Max picture of Freddy behind Robert Shea's desk? Yeah, the Andy Warhol type thing? Yeah. I love how his office is completely decked out in all his Freddy stuff. I love that his ultimate cameo is as himself. Apparently, according to Heather, I thought Wes didn't make horror movies anymore. So apparently she <laughs> saw people under the stairs too. <laughs> <laughs> And nice. Wes is only making movies again because he's having nightmares again. And they're inferring the fact because Wes is having these nightmares, it's causing all of Southern California to fall into the ocean. Like the whole earthquakes, all of this is coming from his creative struggle to reapproach his Freddy mythos. I mean, really? Are you serious? <laughs> like that's pretty self-important to think that your next project is so important it could literally split California in half. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I, gu- I guess the world can't take another Craven movie, and I agree with him. <laughs> <laughs> then we go back and have another scene of Dylan. This kid, his name's Miko Hughes. I know him from Pet Cemetery, where he played Gage, the little kid who kills everybody. Was he the kid run over? He was run over by the truck and comes back. From- yeah, and then comes back, gets buried in the Pet Cemetery, comes back, and now I want to play with you. Oh yeah, I remember that vaguely. Yeah, he he was great in that. He's one creepy ass little kid. Really, <laughs> I mean, they they should have remade the Omen in the '90s just for him. We're gonna get to the Omen, but yes. He does have a quality like that. Yes, we're, we're going to get to the omen this movie. Yes. Meanwhile, his favorite t- stuffed animal, Rex, is all slashed up. He's spouting the nursery rhyme. And the babysitter is just totally useless. She's like, I don't know. He's just... He woke up from a nap. I'm like, what were you doing? Like, what? Yeah, she what? was having an epileptic seizure type thing when Nancy gets... <laughs> Heather gets home. Uh, yeah, it's really bizarre. <laughs> I love that when they mended the dinosaur with the slashes, they used like red string so it looked like big cuts. <laughs> but that cracked well, me up. I wanted to know why he had a T-Rex. Was there any symbolism to the T-Rex? Is it just because Jurassic Park was popular? No, no, you're missing it. Tefkef! He's been around since the history of time. He goes back slashing Triceratops. This evil has been around since <laughs> dino times fighting the dinos. The only thing that can take him down is the T-Rex. I'm so glad I asked. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, I was hoping that we would have a scene that the dinosaur would come alive as a real dinosaur. Thank God we didn't. The last thing I need to see is Dangerous Toys versus Freddy. No, I wanted Land of the Lost with Freddy in the hat swiping at the Stegosaurus. I wanted to see that shit. Maybe maybe in the deleted scenes. So she calls her husband Chase. He comes driving home and... It's really a bizarre moment. Let's take this step by step. When she calls him, he's supposedly in Palm Springs working on a commercial. What he's actually doing is in the truck with that robotic glove. And he's actually been making a robotic glove because that movie is actually in some kind of weird pre-production without Heather having signed on. Yes, and it was supposed to be a surprise for Heather, so they had everyone in the world, including her husband, lie to her about working on it. Now, why, if he's on another job, he's working on that, I don't know, but it disappears from the table when he has to go home, and it pops up underneath the seat to gouge his crotch. Yes, it does kind of toy with the fly, and it reminded me of the first movie, but then it actually stabs him in the chest, not in the groin. Where is Palm Springs in conjunction in... in Two hours away. In bad traffic, it would take him three hours to get home, and it was daylight. So I don't understand. There was nobody on the road. I'm like, it was crazy. I'm like, you dream for that kind of awesome traffic, the way he was driving. <laughs> Literally, in this case. Well, yeah, and I'm like, this is awesome. Like, how could you be falling asleep? You should be at work right now and would not be falling asleep. The whole thing is farcical. I guess we just needed a death and we needed it 10 minutes ago. So they quickly <laughs> expedite. They dispatch him and he drives off the road. And and it's a gory death when this thing stabs him. It's it's far more realistic, whereas Freddy's glove would go in, you know, up to the knuckles. This thing, you know, hits the chest bone and stops and blood starts spurting around. But by the same token, it's all very quick. 
it doesn't do what the previous nightmares did so well, including Wes's original, where it fucks with you in the dream and where it toys with you and you get a dreamlike quality. Here, you get a glove popping up from the seat, much like it popped up from the bathtub. There's even water ripple effects. And then it stabs him, he dies. It's like, that was it? There's not going to be anything more dreamy than that? Is this... Tefcalf. Like, is this the thing controlling the puppet? Because the glove goes away and never comes back. Like, this is it. He, I think they, it, it ends up going and killing the other effects <laughs> guys. But, like, it doesn't even come back at the end. Like, there's one scene. No, I take it back. There's one scene where it tries to go for Nancy on the face, but that was all a dream anyway. Like, it's, this is all for naught that they have this robotic glove thing. Yes, it is Tefcalf coming to fruition through the glove. That's probably also who was putting the letters in the envelope was the thing glove. The glove. That would make more sense. If you, if, that'd have been awesome if you could have seen it like wet the razor and put the stamp on the letter and then dropped it in the mail. Awesome. They really blew that one. Somewhere there's an awesome cut of this movie where Freddy fights dinosaurs and goes to the post office. Then Heather goes to the morgue. You can just walk into a working morgue? Yeah. No, you can't. Now You cannot do that. <laughs> and more to the point, she was not asked to go identify the body. They don't need her to do that. She wanted to. They said that she could just identify from the effect. She's like, no, show me the body. She has some sneaking suspicion that the foul play has happened based on her dreams. And, and the fact that her stalker, she thinks she has a stalker. Oh, I didn't assume that she thought the stalker had killed her. Oh, I didn't either. I'm just saying that weird shit's been going on, so she wants to see the body. Yeah. Anyway, we agree this scene doesn't work, and then they go on to a new scene that doesn't work. The funeral. Filled with cameos. Did you guys see my favorite singer Tuesday night in the crowd? I didn't. No. I picked out the kid who got hung in the jail in the first movie, though. Yeah, because they give him a close-up. Tuesday night is actually in the crowd there. Funny side story that I'm sure everybody listening already knows. Wes Craven didn't ask Johnny Depp back because he figured Johnny Depp was too big a star and then saw Johnny after filming was done. I was like, yeah, I would have done that. It would have been fun. Well, here's my thing about this funeral and throughout the movie when she calls these people for help. I didn't get the impression these people were good friends from filming this one <laughs> small movie all these years ago. Didn't you listen to my original description for this movie, my original summary? Heather has no friends. She <laughs> hires a babysitter, a paid employee who a hangs around. A white babysitter. I'm like, this is in California? She lives in this house and has a white woman <laughs> as her en pair? I like it's all that Freddie money. Oh, right. Oh, Come right. on. She didn't get screwed at all. She got the money. But then also, she has no family members to call, no siblings to call, no friends from high school to call. She only calls people she from the She calls John Saxon John for Saxon. child advice. My child's acting weird. John, help me out. I know we I did this movie it. 10 years ago where you were my dad. Can you give me some parenting advice? <laughs> wow. Wow. I mean, like I said, they did those early flattering scenes of Heather because they were going to dog her for the rest of the movie. <laughs> I know. I mean, seriously. And then later she's having like more bad dreams. Robert, Robert. <laughs> Makes no sense. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> uh, I do have to ask this question. Don't you find this whole thing a little bit creepy now? In real life, Heather Langenkamp's husband's an FX guy who works for Wes Craven. And in the movie, her husband is an FX guy who works for Wes Craven and they kill him. And in real life at this time, Heather Langenkamp had a kid around Dylan's age. And here they have a kid around Dylan's age becoming possessed by Freddy. 
I don't know about you guys. If this were me and somebody came to me and said, I want to write a horror movie where you're a podcaster and we're going to kill your wife. I'd be like, I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this movie was progressive in this sense. In this day and age, there's a lot of reality TV that touches these bases and we see these stars in their home lives and how they project how we would like to think of them when they're off camera. But they didn't have this kind of stuff in the early 90s. And this was pretty radical to think that this is how Heather Langenkamp would live and that she would be so willing to turn over the details of her life. Absolutely not. No self-respecting actor would open up their private life in this way to be fodder for a slasher movie. It just it's it's in very poor taste. And I assume she did it. Not just because she needed the money. I don't. I honestly am not going to be that crass. I think she trusted Wes to do something good with it. I think that she thought, well, he seems to know what he's doing. And in good faith, she gave him a lot of control over her life that it's hard to imagine many people I would allow access and the rights to my life in such a way. You're right. It's why fantasize about murdering my husband, tormenting my child, and making me look like the descendant of a crazy person who's bad to my kid. Yeah, and in the director's commentary, Wes said there were a few things where Heather's like, that's too personal. I don't want that in there. And maybe one of those things was they changed the name of her spouse. Her real husband isn't named Chase. But Maybe that was just too creepy to go to work and call somebody else your husband's name. But it's still the whole thing. I I, I get it. It's very meta. But by the same token, it, it just seems, I don't know, weird and kind of sad. Sad is the word that kept coming up for me. It would seem brilliant and postmodern if he had really done something cool with it. I mean, where are you, Brock? This is your first time seeing the movie. Where do you think this is going? At this point in the movie... I'm acknowledging what the movie is, and I'm saying to myself, I give you full props for trying something different. I just don't think this is working. Because I didn't understand exactly where it was going to go. But my theory was that at some point in this story, since they're talking about this script, that all of a sudden we were going to be in the script. And then as they did in the beginning with the set, they were going to pop in and cut. Great movie, everybody. So you're not really sure what part was the movie, what part really happened, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Did you think Freddy was going to be in this? I was hoping he was going to be in this, and I, at this point, I was still hoping for something to do with Robert Englund doing something interesting. Obviously, they were saying some kind of Freddy something or other is going to pop up, and I was waiting for that to happen. But again, I thought once Freddy comes into the picture, then we're going to be in the movie of Wes Craven's script that he keeps talking about. It's going to switch over. Kind of it does. It sort of does <laughs> towards the end, but they don't call it like, they don't actually play it up like that. Well, they, it starts in this scene that we're talking about. It starts at the funeral. It's the first time we see Tefcaf, you know, right. Freddy, whatever you want to call him. There's an earthquake again, and the casket falls underground with the kid in it, and Tefcaf is there pulling him down into hell. And that's repeated imagery that he's going to keep dragging him down into the earth, dragging him down and down. And Nancy has to rescue him. You mentioned, and we're going to have an ongoing talk about this, that Freddy's darker and scarier in this one. Did I you find this moment to be darker? Yes. I, I, I think he's creepier. And I think it, it was much more serious. And I felt he was much more of a menace than we are used to in the past couple of films. So when we first got the glimpse of what's going on here with this little teaser, if you will, of, of this character, the new Freddy, 
I thought, oh, okay. Like, I was actually, I'm looking forward to seeing more of this guy and see what he's going to do. So I was a little bit intrigued by him at this point, yes. Can I split the difference here and say, yes, it is scarier because Freddy didn't pop up from the ground and go, shake it up, baby! And then try to grab the kid as the earthquake was happening. But by the same token, it isn't scary. It's not as jokey, but at no point is it frightening. It's never as frightening as Freddy was in part three or even in part one. And let's talk about the redesigned Freddy because here's our first time seeing him. He's upgraded a little bit. The sweater's a little bit tighter and a little bit tighter knit so that you don't see the stitching. And the hat is gone at this point. The face i can't even tell if it's supposed to be burns anymore or just it looked more demonic yeah there you go it looked like a cheap alien out of a star trek the next generation episode to me the other thing i noticed here is leather pants i did notice that yes leather leather pants pants yes Yes. like chaps no 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 just like those black leather pants that hey prince might have worn say for example (laughs) Mm, okay i'm not gonna judge So then it turns out it was all a nightmare and the body didn't really fall out of the casket. And this is the introduction of John Saxon playing (laughs) John Saxon (laughs) because he first shows up at the funeral. And when Nancy hits her head on the bar that surrounds the casket, the only one who runs to help is John while everybody else, Kristen Knight and the guy who played Rod Lane are all just standing there. But John Saxon to the rescue. Yes, and and why stop there? You know, I could buy him being at the funeral. In L.A., there are weird connections and people that you wouldn't think associate with each other, hang out with each other. You're saying the weird connections. I would have loved it if they'd gone that one step further and had, like, Kirk Cameron and Coach Lovick (laughs) at the funeral. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if Nightmare is this bad for her, what is uh, just the ten of us doing to her mind now? I don't know. And they got Tuesday night. I have no clue how she would be connected to either Wes Craven or Heather Lang in camp, but they didn't get Brooke Thice, who actually worked with Heather Langenkamp. <laughs> so at the playground, all I could think about was, haven't these people seen Kramer versus Kramer? Because this is the first scary moment in the entire movie for me when that kid was standing on top of that jungle gym. Now, clearly nothing's going to happen to the kid. Kids don't die in horror movies, but they get hurt, or they can get hurt. And I really thought, not, not later on with the traffic, here is where I got scared. Oh my God, are they going to really hurt this kid now in yeah. this part of the movie? Arnie, should we say it in unison what this scene is reminiscent of? The omen? omen? Yeah, the omen. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's an inversion of it in where you had the babysitter jumping off with the noose on, hanging herself, just for you, Damien. That thing. Like, So ha- yeah. now we have a scene where he's up there and they don't notice it at first and everyone's playing. And then the slow dawning horror that, oh, my God, this kid is standing on top of a jungle gym and he is not going to survive the fall. Well, later on, the kid's saying he's trying to reach God so he can know about his dead daddy. Correct. So the, ki- the kid is trying to reach God by climbing this toy. But honestly, what's the point of this scene with him trying to reach God? It never comes to any fruition. This has nothing to do with Tefkef or whatever you're calling him. It's just there to put the child in danger. Yeah, it's got some great music. I mean, you talk about the Omen. What about that music? What up, what up, boom, boom, what up, what up, boom. Yeah. 
you know, it's I a mean, totally different movie. He's just grabbed from something else. And I almost think, does Wes Craven know that he's bagging from all of these other horror movies? Or does he think <laughs> that these are his original nightmares? I'm like, you didn't have a nightmare. You saw a movie. You saw, you stayed up and watched Omen on TBS at two in the morning. And then it'd be like, I have this brilliant idea. A child <laughs> alone on a, what was it? A, some kind of rocket ship. It was, it's the damnedest thing I've ever seen as a playground. But, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's all a launching pad, so to speak, for uh, a, a discussion about how Chase has died and how this kid is dealing with the fact that he does not have a father alive anymore. And what does that mean? I mean, everyone's acting like there's something wrong with this kid. Well, he just lost his father. I mean, is that abnormal? Is that abnormal behavior? I, I just didn't understand why everyone was so quick to assume that it was Nancy's bad parenting and the fact that he watched Nightmare on Elm Street once for why he's going bonkers instead of, I don't know, his father was mangled in a car accident. Well, in addition, at the playground, while the kid's climbing the toy, she's confiding in her close friend, John Saxon, <laughs> that... There's insanity in her family, which may be why we never see her parents or anything. But it do you think he was trying in- to bang her? Do you think he was like, <laughs> you know what? She's single now. I could probably, you know, just wait around, be that sympathetic friend, shoulder to cry on, and by my nightfall, she we could we could clinch that deal that should have happened ten years ago. Yeah, I don't think he was trying to bang her. Yeah, I, I never got that. Yeah. Um, that's just, that's just gross, actually. I'm, I'm creeped out by the whole concept. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean to gross you out. I'm just trying to think of what motivation John Saxon would have for hanging out at a playground with Nancy uh, or with uh, with Heather Langenkamp I, at, at 10 years after the fact. I just It's an illogical moment. So with John Saxon not being any help and, in fact, just <laughs> distracting her to the point where Dylan almost dies from a fall, she then gets another weird letter in the mail that looks like somebody's burning letters into newsprint with a cigarette and so she calls her only other friend in the world robert england <laughs> painter robert england yeah does he paint in real life i have no fucking clue but i hope he didn't paint that because that's some terrible looking shit it was a knockoff of francis bacon i mean i like the artist that they were trying to emulate but yeah <laughs> the, the the work that's actually on display is well you might actually see that kind of stuff in palm springs it's where retired artists go and try their hand at new things it's he's probably there now painting away so she calls robert england to say i'm having nightmares of freddie and of course robert england is both creeped out and yet also having apparently nightmares of freddie as he's painting this nude more demonic freddie and he also says you mean me what I love about this scene is, God, this whole movie is so dated by its telephones. <laughs> but they're on these giant portable phones like people used to have when they had home phone lines. This is happening at a choice moment in human history. It is like the year right before the internet and cell phones come into play in, in American culture. There was certainly a lot of drama that was happening. I'm like, why don't you just call him on his cell? Oh, that's right. <laughs> We can't do that yet. And there's no internet to look this stuff up on. I mean, no email. It's clearly not the 80s, but we're not in that modern sensibility yet. So it's really kind of a, I don't know, I I almost found it cute. What's disappointing about this is you see Robert England is also having Freddy Nightmares. This is the last we see of Robert England. 
And that pisses me off because it, it's never explained. She like, well, r- this is the last we see of Robert England playing Robert England. That's what I'm saying. We it's the last we see of the Robert England character, right? Yes, not of Robert England the actor. And it makes no sense. She wants to meet with him. He pushes her till the next day, and then when she calls, he's left town. And it's never explained. And did Robert England morph into Tefkef, or did he just get the fuck out of Dodge? I don't know. It makes no sense, and we didn't even get a, a scene, a single scene, of Freddy, and they imply that he's being tortured by the same stuff a little bit. We don't even get the scene where he gets to face off against Freddy. Why don't we get that scene? It's dropped as hard as that mechanical razor hand thing that should have come back into play. These things are introduced. We're led to believe that everything is folding back into itself, that everything has a circuitous logic, and that we're going to, all of this will come out to play. And disappointingly, no. Actually, you know, here's the weird thing. I started watching in this thing, like, can this be read as a metaphor for Robert England coming over and molesting her kid? Because. <laughs> Coming up right after this, the phone rings, and the guy with the Freddy voice goes, I touched him. And the little boy starts shaking and, like, spewing foam out of his mouth, and the phone starts foaming. And I'm just like, this is really, like, I don't know. This has overtones of something that feels... I wanted to know why the fuck Freddy said I touched him. That was... I guess that's what I, yeah, it's that specific phrase. Like, I guess they're only implying that he touched him in the bed and that he was dragging him down. Touched him in the bed? That's not even any better. (laughs) You're right. Everything that I say sounds really incriminating. I mean, you know, this is coming post-Michael Jackson accusations. To to bring it from from Prince to Michael Jackson, I mean, Freddie does have a lot in common with Michael Jackson, too. Can I just say that? Like Hat, glove. Yeah, hat, glove, single glove. They love children. They were both publicly burned. I mean, there's a lot that is similar in their lives. You know, the I touched him, it's just so fucking weird that, yeah, you almost laugh at it, but it's not scary. At this point, I have to ask, we're an hour or more into this movie at this point. Are you either scared or entertained? Because I am not. I was not being entertained. I was still confused, waiting for something to happen of consequence that I care about. Because everything's a dream, right? I mean, that's the frustrating thing is even when we get started on something, oh, she just wakes up and it didn't really happen. You know, like the kid comes at her, her own kid tries to kill her. He's taped knives, steak knives, and not going to really, you know, kill her, but he's coming at her with knives taped on his fingers. And we think, all right, finally some drama. Nope, that was a dream too. The thing is, at this point in the movie, you're not really sure what's going on or why. The quick question at this point is, why are we watching it at this point? When are they going to get on with it? So, yes, you're a little bored is what <laughs> I'm taking that as. If you're saying, when are they getting on with it, that equates to boredom. I guess yeah. it's boredom. I was just biding my time waiting for another scene with the kid being somewhat possessed or whatever's going on with the kid or some kind of sleepwalking. Whatever's going on with this kid, let's just move on to the next step in the movie. What is going on with this kid? Because having seen this movie now at least a half dozen times, I still don't know. Is Tefkif possessing the kid i mean that's what is the kid just literally going insane because he's afraid to sleep because of tefkef and we later find out he's having sleep deprivation what is happening here with the kid Stuart? can you shed an ounce of light i will throw some light i don't know if it's coming from the right source but 
they have made a big deal about the fact that Nancy's parenting is at fault for this because Nancy was in a horror movie. And when we get to the doctor character after the oh, kids admitted to the hospital, we're really having, uh, you know, a total accusation of Miss Legenkamp. How could you let your child watch this movie? Maybe because you did a horror movie 10 years ago. That's why he's acting bug nuts. And so I think. <laughs> What they're trying to say is is that, yes, that he is being influenced by the fact that she did Nightmare on Elm Street and that he is going to become Freddy. She even says that to her husband when he's alive, that he started talking like Freddy, he's acting like Freddy, she's seeing Freddy in her own child. Now, whether that's her madness or what's actually happening to the child is up for debate. Because after the knives, she does take Dylan to the hospital. And what is the name of that doctor? Is it Dr. Hefner? I don't know. Hefner? <laughs> like you, Hefner? Seriously, I think it's Dr. Hefner. And the reason I say this is because in listening to the director's commentary, Wes Craven named the character after Dr. Hefner, who ran the MPAA for like 20 years. And so that doctor character... You remember the scene, Brock, from Devil's Rejects where the film credit comes in? Of course I do. Yeah, that's basically who this doctor is, is, the, is Wes Craven's film critic. It's the embodiment of the MPAA censorship and views of Wes's movies. So why doesn't she ever die? Because they make her so villainous. I mean, this character is way over the top with how, like, if people receive treatment like this in the hospital, no wonder we're in the state with healthcare. I mean, this is ridiculous how... Like, you should be taking his temperature, you should be taking his vital signs, and you're sitting here and lecturing me about the fact that I did a horror movie. Yeah, we'll we'll get to a scene later that breaks all kinds of laws. Yeah, right, yes. Illegal is how this doctor is behaving. <laughs> yes, she really is. And we'll, we'll get to that scene a little bit later, but right now she's just a raging bitch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And so Heather Langenkamp goes to her third friend, Wes Craven. <laughs> you know, this is the scene in the movie where I really felt up until this point, I've been obviously in my commentary this whole time, I've been very snarky and critical. But up until this point, I've been willing to go with the movie's strange path because like you said Brock you just want to know what's really going on can you exactly. can we pull back all of these dreams and can you finally tell me what this is all about because i i don't understand and it seems to have a point that is eluding me right now well this is the scene where Wes Craven himself the director of the movie literally turns to the camera and tells you what he's intending with this and I'm telling you, it took my breath away. It Where the movie goes off the rails. To start off with, we get to Wes Craven's home. And Stuart, when you and I watched this during our marathon like 10 years ago, you postulated this was really Wes Craven's home and I went with that. It turns out it's not. But my God, it, it's a gorgeous house. I'm thinking I see where Heather Langenkamp's living in this movie and now I see where Wes Craven lives in this movie. We know who really did get some residuals and who didn't. <laughs> yeah, He's I know. I don't like this huge, giant pool, like 50-yard pool. Yeah, he didn't get this from residuals of Shocker. <laughs> I mean, this is not uh, Hills Have Eyes Part 2 money coming in here paying for this. This isn't the swimming pool from under the stairs. No, it is not. It is someone else's house. I actually know where this house is. It's a really cool place in Malibu. You can see it real high up on a hill. <laughs> 
Did you notice the one thing, you know, as palatial as this house is, as beautiful as it is, did you guys notice that there's like bed sheets on the windows <laughs> that like they go into his office and I'm like, okay, you got a multi-million pad and you can't afford drapes. You know that was something like the sun was setting and the set decorator had to find something. Oh, yeah, I know that, but I'm like, really, you ought to think about this. Did you notice that he has a framed picture of Heather Langenkamp among his bric-a-brac? No, I, I noticed there were memorabilia. There's he had like a, shot a bunch of Malaysian Duffman. dream dolls, and in the middle is Nancy Heather. It was like, wow, I would be so creeped out if somebody I worked with 10 years ago had a framed photo of me in their living room. Well, you know, Wes is the one doing this to her. I mean, that's what he conveys in this scene is that I'm having this dream and uh, it's this evil, which is at least as old as Hansel and Gretel, has been hopping from storyteller to storyteller, finding new ways to incarnate itself and terrify children. And I'm the latest, you know, vessel of uh, imbuing this to the world. And what I'm saying here is as important as any fairy tale that's ever been written and that... Now, here's what doesn't make sense in this whole postmodern take on A Nightmare on Elm Street. Now that New Line has totally fucked up the franchise, is more or less, I'm paraphrasing, it's more or less what he said. Yeah. Yep. It has to find a new way to form. Why is it forming as Freddy? What's so new about Freddy? He says specifically that the demon likes Freddy. And the demon is, I guess, the fans who like Freddy and are upset they're not making any more. But the demon likes Freddy and so is choosing to stay as Freddy as it comes into the real world. The other thing I get is not only is his story so important that it captured an eternal demon, but also... Yeah, this is him directly saying, you know, he goes, when a story gets too familiar or watered down to be sold more easily <laughs> to an audience. Yeah, right? it's really bitter. It's really bitter. I'm like sitting here going, you have nothing but contempt for this creation and you're supposed to be making the new version. No wonder this movie isn't scary. You hate Freddy. And he paid for your pool. <laughs> well, he paid for renting that pool. <laughs> Again, not his house. The only other thing I want to comment on this scene, despite the daffiness and the disappointment of Wes Craven's poor reciting of this bullshit <laughs> postmodern thesis, is the fact that he's writing on a home computer and everything they're saying is being written by itself. So Wes is not even really the creator of what we're watching. It's like he's disowning this movie before we even have a chance <laughs> to vilify him for making it. He's like, I didn't write this movie. I had a dream. There was an earthquake and the shit came out of my word processor. <laughs> All right. I took the scene a different way. I didn't take it as the computer was writing itself. I took it as he'd already written the scene. Yes, that's exactly how I took it. So he knew this whole conversation was going to happen. He wrote it like earlier in the day while Nancy was driving down. And later in the movie, they show us that happening because of the ending of the movie. Yeah, so I don't think it's the computer from Electric Dreams telling the story. I <laughs> think that Wes just had already written all this down. I loved Electric Dreams. <laughs> I wish this were a sequel to Electric Dreams. Now, there's also one last thing is that Wes, you know, this is the whole what George Lucas calls the pointer scene, isn't it, Brock? Where, like, everything just gets explained. So this is exactly 100% the pointer scene. This is the point where you, the audience, have to agree or disagree to go with what the movie is going to do. You have to agree with it's going to go with a demon or you have to think, I don't buy this shit at all. Which way did you go, Brock? 
I, you know, what's funny about that. It was like demon is what I was thinking. <laughs> but I was like, because uh, the next scene we actually get to see Freddy, and it kind of brought me back around a little bit because I liked finally seeing Freddy. And yeah, it had only been eighty minutes. <laughs> yeah. So after this scene, I was thinking, okay, if that's what they're gonna do, okay, now what? And that's where I was at this point in the movie. The last bit of exposition we get from Wes is Heather going, "Is there someone who can stop him?" There's someone in the dream, a gatekeeper, Heather. You have to make the choice whether you'll choose to play Nancy one last time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we it already tells us what the ending is going to be, too. And is that Heather is the dream master, basically, isn't she? I thought she was the gingerbread man or maybe one of the crows that eats the breadcrumbs. It's so convoluted and all of the half-assed symbolism in this thing about what they maybe or do or don't represent and how it's reminiscent of my earlier film or not. It, it, this is the moment where the air is let out of, out of the balloon. And at this point, I know the movie cannot be salvaged. It's intriguing up until a point because it's crazy and you wonder, can they actually pull off this reality kind of horror and make it palpable? Can they actually pull this out of the fire? And the answer after watching the scene is, oh, God, how much longer is this? I have to admit, there were several times during this movie that I was ch- I, I hit the little button to bring up the time meter on this thing because this isn't what I want from a Freddy movie. Why would you? Why would any Freddy fan want Tefcalf? Like, we don't want him to be in a new form coming out. Like, we want him exactly as he has been and and pleased us, right? I mean, this feels like someone thumbing their nose at fans. That's what I meant when I said that earlier. Is like, he has real disdain for the people that made Freddy an icon. Whether I agree with the fact that Freddy should be an icon or not, I don't like the fact that he's shitting on the fans. Well, I'm not as connected to this series as you two are. I didn't grow up with this. I didn't really have the same connection to this character. So my reaction is not the same as yours. My reaction to have this new Freddy with the new claw, the whole thing, is I kind of liked the new look and this, how he's back to being something closer to what I thought the character of Freddy could be in the first movie, a scary, scary mofo. And even though this guy isn't so scary, he's not Wiley e. Coyote putting a bed of spikes on the, on the ground for a guy to fall on. You know, he's not a clown. And right. so, so you have this guy. I, I think for people like me, I don't mind so much. I can see where you're coming from, but to me, it's not the horrible tragedy. Now, to me, again, I'm going to come down the middle here. Brock, I get your point. Yes, we needed to get Freddy away from the madcap Looney Tunes. Yes, we wanted him to be more scary. But you know what else I wanted? I wanted him to be in the fucking movie. (laughs) Wes Craven forgot all the pacing that made Nightmare 1 so great. We started with Freddy, and then 15 minutes in, we had Freddy doing perhaps the, you know, the best kill of the movie, Tina. Here, we're 80 goddamn minutes into it. We've seen little Dylan have epileptic fit after epileptic fit, but what we haven't seen is Freddy. You know, show me the Freddy. What's interesting about you saying that is I thought a whole bunch of these scenes with Robert Englund at the funeral and John Sachs and all that kind of stuff, I thought maybe he thought that was a gift to the fans to see these people again in a nightmare movie. Perhaps it's kind of like the last episode of Seinfeld when he brought all those characters back because everyone wanted to see the characters again. What it played to me was that he was fell in love with this idea in the first half of the movie so much that he wanted to play with that idea so much 
that he had too much in it and he could have played a little bit less of that beginning section of the movie and got on to where the end of the movie was going and perhaps it would have been more satisfying. And to me, I don't even think he wanted to make a Freddy movie. I think this was his statement. It was an autopsy. This was him dissecting what Freddy had become and how horrible it was and how he and Heather Langenkamp have to put it to bed. And, you know, honestly, again, listening to the director's commentary, there were some of those early Dylan scenes and Bob Shea said to Wes Craven, the kid's freaking out too often. We need to cut one of these early scenes and trim the movie down. Bob Shea was right. Wes said no. Bob Shea was right. No Freddy movie needs to go on for two hours, especially when the first 80 minutes is pretty Freddy free. I mean, hasn't Bob Shea been right this whole time? This man would have this be Nightmare on Elm Street 3. We wouldn't have gotten Dream Warriors. We would have gotten this if Wes had gotten his way. Chilling. This goes back to what we said at the very beginning of our very first Nightmare on Elm Street podcast about Wes Craven. Yes. And my thesis for this whole movie, which is that he has come back after shunning this whole franchise to really make an antithetical movie that I can't imagine would please anyone that really likes the character. I can't imagine if you were into Freddy movies, you would feel like what you loved was being honored. And I'm going to steal one of your off-the-mic lines, Stuart. You often are fond of saying the people who put you on top aren't the people who keep you on top this ain't gonna bring any new horror (laughs) fans to freddy no this isn't gonna find the people who like horror because you're never gonna turn somebody who just hates horror into a horror fan with you're not gonna do that but this isn't going to find people who didn't like freddy but like horror and turn them in because i have a hard time at this point calling this a horror movie quote unquote right now it's more of a psychological thriller you know more than it is horror with the exception of chase's death in the first 90 minutes of this what is horrific there's the playground scene that's slightly scary but brock called it out that's kramer versus kramer is that a horror film meryl streep's in it she is frightening but this isn't horrific in any way the only new fans i could see it bringing in are jenny mccarthy and all those women that are trying to you know treat their autism by giving them strange homemade drugs i mean this really feels like a lifetime movie about my sick child in the mean healthcare system that won't help him (laughs) and and case in point we get back to the hospital and miss lingenkamp we put your child in an oxygen tent without telling you why don't you go home or before we lock you up I mean, ridiculous. <laughs> I want to know what went wrong with him that they put him in an oxygen tent. Is he having lung problems? Because <laughs> last time I checked, the doctor was saying he was schizophrenic. I don't think an oxygen tent helps with schizophrenia. I don't know. He was vomiting up like Linda Blair. But I, I <laughs> right you know. on Heather Langenkamp. <laughs> yeah, and, he, and he, he did everything but turn his head around. That's all he did. And, and they're like, okay, the, the child hasn't slept for the day, so the, the nurses are going to put him down. They tagged him this boy like tricking him with which hypo they're gonna do what they're doing is the babysitter they're distracting the babysitter faking one hypo while they inject him with another do you have any idea what kind of laws they are breaking by refusing the guardian's request to not treat there are so many religious organizations scientology as well as what is it the christian scientists who don't believe in medicine the hospitals and doctors have to go and get fucking court orders before they can do anything do you have any idea heather would be taking wes's house with the money 
money she'd be getting from that hospital <laughs> just for that one pinprick of that kid. <laughs> it's hard to know why these nurses are so hell-bent on dragging the child. I, I Maybe they're the nurses from part three. So then the babysitter punches out the nurse. I know. And in the words of my father-in-law, this movie has become re-goddamn-diculous. <laughs> well, that's what I was talking about before, about maybe this turns into the script. When she decks the nurse... And then a few, and, if, and maybe like five minutes later, Heather Lankenkamp elbows one of, I think the same nurse, and she goes off screen going, oh. And, <laughs> and I thought, okay, now we're in the movie. Yay, we're in the movie. And no, it didn't happen that way. But I, I, that's what I was rooting for. As a funny aside, the nurse didn't know Heather Lankenkamp was going to elbow her in the guts. <laughs> <laughs> when she walked off the camera, she was really in pain. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you got to suffer for your art. Her face was hysterical. I laughed out loud with that nurse's face. Oh, well, imagine if you were doing your scene and the star fucking belts you. <laughs> I can't believe you brought that up. I'm like, wow, I'll have to forget this little factoid. It was hysterical. It was so funny. Yeah, it was good. It was so, good. But also, right before, <laughs> after she decks decks the nurse out she starts to tell the kid don't fall asleep stay awake stay with me lady he got injected with a sleep something or other he's going to fall asleep no matter what you say to him you saw him get nailed with a thing he's gonna go to sleep so finally we get a freddy kill or a finally 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 we have i will i'll go one step further we have a good scene i actually like this scene I can't say that about much of what I've seen before, but when Tefcat finally comes back in the full hat and coat and does Julie the babysitter and drags her up on the ceiling in the whole white room, he looked cool. It looked cool. It was a good moment. I completely agree with you. I loved how he was defying gravity on the side of the wall. I loved everything about this scene. It was basically the same death as in the first movie, but just modernized and much more scary and a lot more fun to watch. And even though the first, in the first movie it was great there, here it was awesome. It was like 2.0. And he looked great. I love the coat. I thought he looked scary. The way he was hunched over a little bit, the way he scowled, the whole thing worked for me. I liked it a lot. The whole death to me, it does seem like a replay of Tina, but it was like – if we could have seen what Freddy was doing to Tina, we get to see that this time because we see Julie being dragged up the wall, but we see Freddy dragging her instead of just her invisibly floating up. And it was more cruel. And she's fighting back more than Tina did. Julie, yeah. obviously, from punching out the nurse, has some feist to her. Mm. I actually like the makeup effects. I mean, we've talked about how they went for demonic and it wasn't as burnt and all of that. But I really like the look of Freddy in this one. It's a really cool look. And I, I felt like in this moment, I wish the rest of the movie had been able to capture what this moment had. And that, Brock, I hear you in this moment when you say they brought him back to being scary and menacing, yeah, and sure he's did. here, all of that. In this 40 seconds, whatever, <laughs> however long yeah. this scene lasts, I am totally right with you and intensely feel that. And at no other time in the movie do I feel that. The overcoat was a great touch. It does look cool. I gotta say, before the movie ever came out, the pre-production shots, I was getting to see the glove and the new look of Freddy. And that coat does work. Completely. 
The problem with this scene for me is that it's it's a case of too little too late. If this scene was in a better movie, this would probably be a great, great scene. But for me, all I can do at this point is just be like, well, thank God we finally got here. Part of me is, of course, tainted by the fact that I know where it's going. And the other part of me is tainted by the fact that I know where it comes from. So, you know, when this scene was shown in a trailer, yeah, I was like, oh, fuck, yeah, this scene's great. But in the actual movie, it's 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 just too little too late. And it's just ever so redundant from the first one. It's the best scene of this whole movie, but that isn't saying a lot. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, Arnie, but I'm a starving man. I'll take any crumb I can find, and I liked this scene a lot. My favorite scene is actually the next scene coming up, because Dylan, after seeing the babysitter butchered, wants his goddamn stuffed animal. Rex, the Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex, is going to protect him from Tefcap. It totally makes sense if they had kept that dino scene I'm talking about in. Yeah, the dinos, yeah, with Tyrannosaurus Rex from yeah. Jurassic Park. Right, right. He's, <laughs> he's throwing up talents with Triceratops. It would have been awesome. It would be fantastic. I would have loved it. So Dylan is walking home across an L.A. freeway, and this to me is the high point of the movie. And again, if you took these two scenes back to back and put them in a much better movie, my God, would they kick ass. Yeah, there's some bad effects going on in the cross in the highway scene, some terrible blue screen, just terrible even for the time, like rear projection out of a 70s flick. But beyond that, the scene of seeing this kid crossing the highway and seeing Heather Langenkamp chase after him. It's a good scene. I liked how he's floating. I liked the big claw holding him over and dangling him. I liked a lot of things about the scene. I couldn't stop thinking about Bowfinger. Is this the same freeway? <laughs> they don't even identify which freeway it is. There's a lot of freeways that run through the Southland area. Okay. And they're, they're out by Pasadena. I, I couldn't tell you exactly where it's at. But that aside, I thought it was fine. I have seen that scene before. And she gets hit by a car and just gets up and runs away. Fine. Well, I- you've seen the scene before, but I think you've seen the scene before after. Because I had not seen this scene before when it came out. And it still gets me when the semi truck goes over her and she's kneeling and all of that. But I do have one question, though. Again, I go back to what the fuck's up with Dylan. Is Freddy trying to kill Dylan because Freddy seems to save Dylan's ass here by lifting him over the truck? No. Is he taunting Dylan? What the fuck? He's fucking with Nan- Heather, whoever she is at this point. <laughs> she, he's screwing with her. Yeah, I feel like the target is her and Dylan. We're never really sure how much Dylan is taking in on this. I got a quick question, though. The scene happens really rapidly. We, we have not mentioned that the gray streak that Nancy had in her hair is now on Heather. At this point, she's already in full Nancy mode. Yeah. Which goes into my theory of they were going. Yeah, thin. yeah, they're merging the fiction. They're merging them, right? Quote so, unquote reality. Yeah. There's one thing when they're crossing the street that makes me kind of shake my head. There's like this scene where like 20 Freddies run up to a fence. Yeah, I didn't get that. I didn't get it at I, all. I don't get it, and more to the point, it must have looked really terrible as they only leave it in for like fractions of a second. It should have been cut out entirely, though. I thought it was yeah. a bunch of people wearing masks. Well, they were people wearing masks, but they were supposed <laughs> to be you know, Freddy. You know what I mean. They look like people <laughs> wearing Halloween masks. It's like they hired a bunch of day laborers off the street, and they're like, you want to go? You want us to go paint your house? No, no, no. We want you to be Freddy in the scene. Just stand there. <laughs> Who wants to work today? <laughs> <laughs> so they go back to the house, and John Saxon is there, because he's the only one who gives a shit about Langenkamp. <laughs> he calls- I'm telling you, he's trying to get into the bedroom. She calls John Saxon. Of all people to call at this point, not the police, John Saxon. Well, he is a cop in the movies. He's not a yes. cop, but he played one on the big screen. 
And this is the final conversion, the final jump back into the Nightmare on Elm Street world, where she accepts that she's really Nancy, and he becomes her father again, and like in the climax of the original movie, doesn't believe Freddy is attacking her, and chooses to drive away in his cop car while she has to go face the terror alone in the Elm Street house. And they're, ch- and they're wearing the same clothes. That's the I, first movie. I, I guess they are. You're right. They do yeah. that. Yes. And when she turns back around, her house is the Elm Street house. Yes. But when she goes into her house, it's her old house. I noticed that too. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie's popping out of the bed like he did. I always like that effect when it, it's just a bulge in a, in a mattress. Would have been better <laughs> if it was a waterbed. <laughs> and she has to follow the trail of breadcrumbs to the dreamland, which is actually uh, the sleeping pills that Dylan hadn't been taking and putting under his pillow that he now leaves so that what's the thinking that he can come back or that she can join him is that she can join him. But can I nitpick for a second? Does nobody remember in Hansel and Gretel the trail of breadcrumbs failed? Yes, that's exactly my problem with with this whole theory. They, when she's reading him the story early in the movie, he says, you have to tell me the whole story because the breadcrumbs are what get them back. It isn't. The crows ate them. Yeah, and the father comes and rescues the chi- children after right, right. like axing up the mother or something, the stepmother. Yeah, leave it to Wes Craven to get Hansel and Gretel wrong. But I mean, it- this man... Fucks it up. So it always bothered me that, like, they're going, oh, here's the trail of breadcrumbs that will save me. No, that's not at all what happened. She eats every single one of them, as opposed to just putting them in her pocket. She eats them. That's Judy Garland territory right there. She could die of an (laughs) overdose. And if she's eating all these pills, it's conceivable that she falls asleep. That's why she took the pills, was to fall asleep, to enter the dream world where she could battle Freddy and save Dylan. But... Freddy is now in the real world. Is we he? Saw him it's at- all very fucking confusing. He's not totally in the real world because she has to fall asleep to get there. That's my point. She's the gatekeeper. Not, it's, it's not It's not clear at He can all. mail letters. He can make phone calls. Right. But it's when Dylan falls asleep that he's able to kill the babysitter. The babysitter's wide awake. Uh, I guess. Wes Craven is not big on rules, and I'm not big on Wes Craven. Regardless, she ends up shooting out of the Freddy water slide into ancient Greece. <laughs> there, are, there are columns and Roman art deco everywhere. And we have now seen that Tefcalf used to hang out with minotaurs and we're in ancient Greece times. Didn't you notice this was the set from the first scene, though? Barely. It's the set where they were making the new hand. We didn't really see a lot of that set, and they certainly didn't have pillars. There was no Doric <laughs> columns standing around with fr- Freddy faces spewing water. Can we, so, can we... yes, there was some of that. But I'd have to think that if you're listening to this podcast right now, and you didn't know this was a movie, like the, the plot, didn't know anything about it, your jaw must be on the ground going, is this real? Like, <laughs> I would want to see this movie having people describe this to me because this is way off the rails. I mean, this is, how could they do this? It should have been a boiler room. How could he not make it a boiler room? I mean, how could he expect people to swallow this? You art back to art house douchery, Arnie. I'm going to bring back that (laughs) phrase. You used it so liberally during Martin Scorsese. You've got to call him out on this. This is Bullshit. Yes, I, I completely agree. Unfortunately, I don't think it's artistic enough to actually be called art house douchebaggery. I just think it's douchebaggery in general. 
Well, believe it or not, in, in 1994, it was the lead film of the Chicago Film Festival. It was the centerpiece to their festival. They were calling it an art movie. Wow. We're talking about the demon, not Freddy Krueger. So therefore, while I agree with you, the boiler room would have been freaking great. What they did was they went where the demon lives. The demon knows, et cetera, et cetera. That's why it's there, not the boiler room. But, I mean, it's also arbitrary. She could wake up in a bed and none of this could have happened. I mean, it's this kind of movie now where there's no rules, there's no logic, there's no adherence to anything. You feel like, how is this script writing itself? And literally, she finds the script of the movie lying there. I'm like, throw that shit in the furnace. <laughs> Go it right now. Don't worry about pushing Freddy in the oven. Throw this trash away. Here's the thing. It could have been anything. Uh, yeah, they go into like this hell region. But if he's wants to be Freddy, even to the point of taking Freddy's bitch lines. Yeah. Pick a pet for the Rugrat bitch. Yeah. And where's your mommy Piglet when Freddy had used Piglet before? He's taking Freddy's catchphrases. Why not take the boiler room? I hear you. It is supposed to be like a boiler room. I mean, there's so many mixed metaphors in this thing. I mean, what Wes Craven's trying to do is blend the Hansel and Gretel fairy tale in with what he did and saying it's all the same thing and not only is that an act of extreme hubris it doesn't work i mean just it doesn't even make any sense yeah when he goes one two freddy's coming for you come to papa gonna eat you up at this point i'm i'm like rolling my eyes so hard that I get mm-hmm. eye strain. Yeah, I, I would be like the gingerbread man and be running out the theater if I had been you in the theater watching this. I can't believe you said that. I went back a second time. Well, you know what? I can understand that impulse because I would want to know that it was real. I couldn't wait to see this movie again <laughs> because it was like a dream to me. I only saw that once during that marathon you and I did, and I swear thinking about it again, I'm like, did that really happen? Is this really a movie? Did they really do it this way so anyway i mean let's finish this up pushed in the oven tongue shooting out yeah they ripped off ghoulies they ripped off ghoulies with the tongue <laughs> the tongue comes out of freddie's mouth wraps around heather's neck and i'm like oh my god where's the toilet demon <laughs> maybe that was what tef calf was before uh, a nightmare in elm street 3 the only thing i'll say about this ending imagery is i do like when they finally cut the tongue away from nancy and it's forked and we really see freddie as a demon i thought that was kind of cool i thought it was impressive they had the money for morphing technology because they morph a pup Freddy head into a real Freddy head. Is that how they do the mouth opening? Uh, no, the mouth opening is a giant puppet. That's what but I when thought. When the mouth is closing, it morphs to a Freddy head. It's right out of Michael Jackson's black or white video. Well, we were a couple years beyond that at this point. The morphing but was becoming. This movie, the- did you see some of the bad rear projection when Heather was falling into the hell? <laughs> they spent the money on the morph. You don't think this is the best effects we've ever had in the series? Well, no, I don't either. Scratch that. (laughs) You don't think that this is the most elaborate and financially costly effects we've had in the series? It probably is, but here's the thing. Whereas I would say part six specifically had very good effects, it knew what it could do going in and did it. This movie reached beyond what it could do. 
in all areas, acting, writing, directing, <laughs> you name it. This movie had ambition. It couldn't begin to complete. It's the very definition of pretentious. I can't believe that Wes Craven would come back to piss on the legacy of the only good thing that he ever did at that point. It's really shocking. You want to talk about bad effects, though. When the Freddy turns into that final demon, that was just really cheap looking. I, I loved it when it was Golden Child. <laughs> My dear brother Noopsie. That's what I kept saying when I saw it. It was that. the same level of special effects. Ten years later, it hadn't gotten any better. No. I'm not sure they didn't actually cut some cells out of Golden Child and just paste them on. Like, it's that copycat. <laughs> so they defeat Freddy, and they go back to the bedroom, and they find the script, and they find that everything they're saying is already in the script, and they decide to finish the script, reading it out loud, and they're supposed to be then the final morphing of the real life and the script and the movie in a tight little bow. Yep. And that is disappointing. Yeah. Because I was I was hoping it was going to be, cut, great, everybody, great movie, yada, yada, and do, do that whole, that kind of ending to let us know that we have been watching the movie from a certain point in the middle of the movie, and they didn't go there. They went, they stayed with, I guess, what they thought was the premise of this movie, and it was unsatisfying at the end. Would it have been a better movie if they said cut at the end, really? I mean, if they pulled the Get Shorty ending, would you have liked that? <laughs> Yes, I guess I would have because they opened the movie this way and they kind of thought they were going that with this route. The whole time I was led to believe this was going on and that was the payoff I was waiting for. Whether or not I've been satisfied that, by that payoff, Arnie, I can't tell you because this movie was so wonky. But I do know that maybe my anticipation of that ending kind of marred this ending at all. But I got to tell you, whatever. I'm going to cry bullshit on you, Brock. I'm just going to throw what? down a yellow card and cry bullshit because what? at this point, nothing can save this fucking piece of shit movie. It's been. 110 minutes of shit and somebody yelling cut at the end is not going to make that better. I'm telling you <laughs> that's what I thought they were going with this. What, it doesn't I, matter if you thought they were going there. It doesn't improve it. It really doesn't. <laughs> it's still the same boring 110 minutes of shit. <laughs> what you're saying I think Brock is that it would have made it for a more satisfying ending. It would not have made it for a more satisfying movie. Yes, exactly what I'm saying is to got what it, this movie got was. It, got hey, okay. I love the poster for this movie. You, you guys check that one out. It's like... <laughs> Freddie wearing a burqa. That was really cool. If you want me to say anything other nice, I'm done. Burqa? The poster is just Freddie eyes. That's all there right. is on the poster. No, I know. It's, that's what I mean. It's like it's black for everything else. It's just like his eyes. It's actually like the cover to Michael Jackson's Dangerous. Again, I'm saying Michael Jackson chasing the boy around Neverland Ranch. <laughs> yes. So, Arnie Stewart, do you recommend Wes Craven's New Nightmare? <laughs> I wonder what the answers are. Yeah. Right. Everyone's on, everyone's on the edge of their seats going, he might like it. He might recommend it. I do recommend it if you want to watch someone set out to do something artistic and fail completely. And I mean that sincerely. I am fascinated by pretentious films that completely and utterly fail and this is one of them it's just it's mystifying i've never seen anything quite like it it's it's wrong in so many ways and so many levels that it's fascinating but come on this is a podcast about people that want to know about freddy krueger in the series if you've liked any of the movies in the series a single one of them I can't imagine that this one will deliver anything that you like. It's the opposite of that. And the only thing I can say nice is 
Wes Craven fixes it all two years later and makes a very cool self-referential film called Scream. He does get the formula right later, but here it is all out of whack and it's lethal. It's toxic. It'll kill you. Let's face it. Wes Craven needs somebody else doing the writing. Mm. Arnie. You know, I was, again, listening to the Freddy vs. Jason commentary and Robert Englund says his two favorite films in the series are parts one and part seven. Because Whoa! And he says that they create a nice bookend because they have so many similar themes and similar concepts. He goes, the fans really like three and four, but I like one and seven. Robert, you're right. The fans like three and four. (laughs) Seven's a piece of shit. (laughs) I didn't like it then when I was only a couple years away from wearing a fucking Freddy mask to a theater. I was your fucking demo. And I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. This is one of those movies, I know, Brock, you feel this way about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. If it didn't come in the fucking box set, this would not be in my house. When I bought the box set, I was like, are they going to put it in there? They shouldn't put it in there. Oh, fuck, they put it in there. It's a turd. There's nothing good about this movie. I really went into this with an open mind, even though in the back of my mind there was dread because I remembered all of my reactions from before. It's all back. It's not just slow moving. It actually is desecration of what I liked of the previous movies. There's a couple good scenes. I like the action set pieces of the death in the hospital room. I like the set piece of crossing the highway. And I like the Robert England poking fun at himself very early on. Here's the thing is it goes from satire to maybe the whole thing is supposed to be viewed as a satire, but it's like Wes Craven can't make up his mind and has to hedge his bets. Here, it's a very funny satire and you've got Robert England hamming it up. And here, it's supposed to be scary as we put the child with knives on his fingers. And here, we're trying to be spiritual when the little boy looks up at Heather and says, why does God let there be bad things? He can't make up his mind. There's no discipline to his writing. And that pisses me off. I, I can't recommend it to anybody. I recommend you stay far, far away from the stinker. I did not think this movie was as bad as you two did. I really didn't. And Stuart, the way you were trying to prep me for it last time, I mean, Freddie could have you know, done anything the way you were talking. He could have been terrorizing a fast food joint for all. I know what you, <laughs> what you warned me before. But I do know that I did not have the same horrific reaction you two did to have this movie. That being said, I am not going to recommend this movie. No, <laughs> I am not. And there's real reasons for it. I did say during the course of this podcast the things I did like about this movie and I was willing to give this movie a lot of chances to make something good happen I can see what I think he was trying to go for and since I as Stuart said since I like Scream I did think he was going for similar stuff there and and that and just didn't come together for everything that I did like in this movie there was a whole bunch of stuff that I was just like um, so if you are watching this series, you can entirely skip this and not miss a thing, not miss a thing at all. So no, I do not recommend this movie. And just want to make the point that I don't think it's as bad as you two say it is, but it certainly is not a good movie, but we're splitting hairs. We all agree. Don't watch the movie. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Well, whether you feel it a little or a lot, you feel like this is a bad choice to make to sit down and watch it. They got one thing right in realizing Freddy needed to be rebooted after part six. This was a reboot before the term reboot was even being used. Mm-hmm. They had the right instinct 
bringing Craven back was a poor decision. He's just I, not I, up to the job. He's not yeah. up to do the ambitious things they're asking to do. He's not a postmodernist. He's a hack. He's not commercial enough either. He's really not. And, you know, it's a big point of contention. Wes Craven's pissed off at Platinum Dunes because they're not involving him. This gives me hope. Uh, you wouldn't hire someone that hates Freddy Krueger to make a Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. That's what I would say. I think the idea of what Freddy was here and the evil of Freddy here gives me hope that someone out there realizes that this character has much more potential than he had realized. Well, let's go to something a little bit more fun. Let's get back to Freddy singing. Uh, you know oh. what? I can't wait. Whatever he does, I'm going to enjoy him more. As long as it's Freddy and not Tef Cap. That's all it I is got not Tef Cap, nor is it the artist formerly known as Prince. Yeah, it is Freddie. I'm not even going to tell you guys what the song is because it's one of those songs that you'll know it when you hear it. <laughs> okay. Freddie's at a Mexican wedding. Oh wait a minute! Is oh, this Wooly no. Bully? Oh man! It is Wooly oh. Bully. What? 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 <laughs> here it come! Here it come! Is that Freddy? Yes, that is Freddy. Are you sure you got the right CD, Arnie? Yes, I am. I don't think this is the, the Freddy Singers or whatever it is. Well, why? This has nothing to do with nights or dreams. Or... No one knows what Wooly Bully is about. That's the point. His sweater's kind of wooly. <laughs> and he is a bully. Wow. You guys are stretching worse than Craven in New Nightmare. <laughs> Yeah, how does this relate back to Wooly Bully? Hmm, no, I'm not going to give this anything. Can we turn this off? Can we actually stop the song? I've never, I've never felt the need to do that, but I'm at my wit's end here. First one's Craven's new nightmare, and now Freddy's singing. I really? Well, how much more must I endure? <laughs> Let's just get to Freddy versus Jason, because I know that one's fun. At least Freddy's a part of the song, versus the complaint you guys have had in several others is he's been basically absent. But he shouldn't be in this song. <laughs> right. This shouldn't have been in the song book. I mean, we were talking about copyrights. Did this one go up and they're like, we can do it for free? <laughs> like, I think that's the only reason to cover Wooly Bully. There must have been something, because I remember around the same time, Bruce Willis singing Wooly Bully. Yeah, he was trying to promote that Bruno shit. He, had, he was doing that whole I'm a 50s rocker thing. You gotta think about it. Freddie was following on the heels of Bruce Willis and Eddie Murphy here. Hey, my girl wants to party all the time. Return of Bruno, Freddy's Greatest Hits. Oh, my God. Did he really see himself in the mold of that? Wow. <laughs> and you got to think, just like Bruce Willis, Freddy's doing some old standards with some new stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> I like that you guys did that in unison. You know what? I didn't like a lot of 50s music. I talked about how I went on the car rides. My parents always wanted to play their old music, and I would make fun of them. But this is one I actually like. And hearing Freddy Krueger kill it, I feel sick. Yeah. He kills a lot of things, Stuart, and one of them is the song. You know, he killed the soul. One, like, you're the man's these... full of souls. Well, pull one out, because this is... Whew. You're right. He should have some soul. I agree with you. Yeah, the, this is a really poor rendition. 
I think, like, did he get the wiggles? I mean, this is like kids' music. <laughs> it does sound like kid bop or. Yeah. Well, in West Craven's New Nightmare, it goes, You ever play Skin the Cat? I guess here he's playing Skin the Bull. I didn't understand that line. How do you play Skin the Cat? I don't know. I guess it involves a cat. Oh, my God. Like, that's the game? I don't know. (laughs) I don't want to play that game. (laughs) I kind of thought the song would be the high point, but you guys are really... No, no, it really isn't, Arnie. It really (laughs) is not a high point. All right, Freddie doing Spanish. (laughs) I do like the fact that he's bilingual, yeah. So if you enjoy this podcast, please go to our website at www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download other podcasts in this series. I would like to add to our new listeners who are joining us, we actually liked some of the old Nightmare on Elm Street episodes <laughs> that are in the archives. So if this is your first time listening, it's not all like this. Yes, no, it certainly is not. And we also liked films in the Star Trek series, Back to the Future series, Friday the 13th series, and we didn't like all of them. So you should find out which ones we liked and did not like by listening to all of them, which can be found in the archives section. You can also discuss this movie with other fans like yourselves in our forums, and you can find that link on our homepage. You can also find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can pretty much... Find us everywhere all over the internet. We thank you for listening, and we hope you come back soon. And our next movie is going to be something of a first for now playing. We're going to review a movie a second time. We will be returning to Freddy vs. Jason, but it is not just us releasing the old episode from the archives. We are watching it again and reviewing it again. Last time, our intent was to focus very much on the Jason story, but it was, you know, it's impossible to focus entirely on one. And now we're going to focus on Freddy, as we've been doing week after week. Wouldn't it just be easier to do one of those Family Ties episodes where, like, they meet Alex's new girlfriend and say, remember that time Alex set the kitchen on fire? And they go into a flashback of the kitchen going on fire and, you know, the kangaroo in the living room, whatever. So wouldn't it be easier for us to do that, setting up little snippets from the other one and play old snippets from the old podcast? Well, that would be easier on you guys, the hosts. It would be much harder on me, the editor. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should do that, Brock. I'm with you. The I think it'd be the, great. In the living room. Whatever that was, I like it. <laughs> well, Arnie, Stuart, it has been an interesting conversation today, to say the least. Epic. It's been as good as Hansel and Gretel, I think. <laughs> Perhaps I'm, I'm now following some breadcrumbs into my bed and waiting for Freddy versus Jason. And I am throwing my DVD of Wes Craven's New Nightmare out for the birds. <laughs> we can put it in our shelf in a distinct place next to The Godfather 3. Why does God let this movie exist? <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, crawl into your bed and be happy, but whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Then what's he going to do in his bed? Yeah, I, I rephrase that. <laughs> I crawl into bed and be happy. You stay out of my bed. You don't know what happens in my bed. It's over. I gotta go now. It's okay. It's all over. Now no one sleeps. Thank you for listening to our Nightmare on Elm Street retrospective. But there's so much more to learn. Keep coming to NowPlayingPodcast.com every week to get the latest episode. Oh, yeah. Great to be back in business. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, stop by our forums to post your thoughts on this series. You can also find us on Twitter as NowPlayingPod 
or our Now Playing Podcast fan page on Facebook. Tell them Freddy sent you. Links to the forums, Facebook, and Twitter pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Next time, don't, don't stay away so long. A Nightmare on Elm Street is copyright and trademarked New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers Entertainment. You can do God what it takes. <laughs> now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers Entertainment, or Platinum Dunes. I am eternal. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010, all rights reserved. the giggles now and we're, and we're like 10 minutes in <laughs> <laughs> holy shit <laughs> all right uh, and nancy's hu- nancy Chris- Kristen. what the fuck's her uh, name heather. anymore heather, heather. <laughs> <laughs> blooper reel, blooper reel. well maybe the reason why nancy's child is screwed heather. up is because Heather's oh yeah <laughs> we're wow. gonna do that should a i lot. do the whole thing again no, well, no we're just gonna do that a lot yeah, she so. becomes Nancy at the end, so fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Betw- then Nancy, Heather, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole blooper reel is going to be me doing that. But incidentally, since we're talking about how Wes Craven lives, did you know that he's neighbors with Polly Shore? And did you know that Polly Shore ruined his lawn and that they had this big battle? Yes. Yes, I did. I did know that. That's all I could think of when I saw the beautiful pool and lawn. I'm like, it'll be sucky when the weasel trashes this. (laughs) Hey, buddy! That would have been a scarier movie, too, if it had been Polly versus Wes, rather than Heather slash Langenkamp versus Tefcalf. But I, I gotta say, Wes is scarier than Polly. Slightly. Yeah. However, well. and I'd rather watch a Pauly, several Polly Shore movies instead of this one. I'm not saying any. I, there are some that I would prefer to watch Wes Craven's New Nightmare, but at this point, I'll take Biodome. I'll take son in law. -law. You got Carla Gugino in it. I'll take that in a a heartbeat. Well, I can't go with you guys at all on that one. You're not even going to take Encino Man over Wes Craven's New Nightmare? In the army now? Confessions. I've never seen a Polly Shore movie. I don't think I could. I just don't think I could. Next retrospective series, Paul. Wow, I'm deaf. Are you going to cut all this? I don't know. He's going to cut it for hours because this is a three-hour fucking podcast. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, thank you two for joining me today. It was in... uh, Fuck you. What? I'm moving on. Not you. (laughs) I love the fact that this is the one that he runs screaming away from saying he never wants to think about and he'll spend the most time cutting. (laughs) Oh, my life sucks.